Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're wrapping up our study on encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of John. thought it would be appropriate to end this study with Jesus confronting his disciples and giving this incredible example of humble service. I read about a pastor one time who thought he was doing a pretty good job. You know, sometimes God has a way of just kind of knocking us down a notch. This pastor was standing out there after the church service, and a little boy started tugging on his, on his arm, and the pastor said, hey, well, what's up? And he said, when, when I get older, I'm going to give you all my money. The pastor thought, that's great. He says, why, why would you want to do that? He says, because my dad says you're the poorest preacher he's ever heard. <laughs> so sometimes when you think you've arrived, God has a way of coming in and saying, you're really not who you think you are. You really need to be humbled. So we're going to look at... Jesus confronting the disciples, even in the midst of these uh, followers of Christ learning about him, coming to this final week of his life, they're still arguing about among themselves who's the greatest. And Jesus knocks them down a notch, notch and lets them know really what humility and servanthood is all about. Chapter 13, verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and that may mean to the end of the world, it may mean to the, to the uttermost, to the completeness, all of those things I think are included in that. Now, by the time of supper, the last supper, the, the Passover celebration, by the time of the supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, so... He got up from the supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet to dry them with the towel around him. He came to Simon Peter, and you know Peter's going to say something, right? He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will know. So Peter says this in verse 8, you will never wash my feet ever. There's an emphatic, Peter's not going to let him do that. You will never wash my feet ever, Peter said. And Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you will have no part with me. We'll talk about that later, no relationship with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So Peter steps in, and not only is he uh, a little bit prideful, he's going to tell Jesus how to do it. Jesus says in verse 10, significant statement here, one who is bathed, Jesus told him, does not need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, not all of you, for he knew who would betray him, and this is why he said, you are not clean. We're going to talk about that word bathe, and I like that the Holman Christian Standard and the ESV and many translations, instead of wash, translate that bathe because that's exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter. Well, let's walk through here and look at some uh, truths for us today about the love of Christ and our role in humbling ourselves and following him. Number one, 
We need to comprehend Christ's love for us. We need to comprehend Christ's love for us. Look at verse one. Having loved his own, that last part of the verse there, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He is saying that that the Lord loved us completely, totally, to the full extent of love. And it's everlasting. Having loved his own. I love how Paul describes this love that the the Lord has for us in Ephesians chapter four. When when Jesus is praying for his, 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 um, when Paul is praying for, for the church at Ephesus, he says, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, what is the width, what is the height, and what is the depth of God's love. Here's what Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus. I pray for you, church, that you could comprehend the depth, the height, the, the weight, the magnitude of the love of God. And right here, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, as he says in verse one there, I have loved you to the very end, to the uttermost, completely, totally. John lets us know in verse one there that, that it's the Passover festival. Significant because Jesus is about to to institute this this Last Supper, this Passover meal with them, where he is going to let them know that he is the Lamb of God. He's been telling them, trying to prepare them, that he's the Lamb of God who's going to be given for them, who will deliberately lay down his life for them. I love Romans 5, 8. God demonstrated his love in this. You know the rest of that? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do I know the depth of God's love? Jesus says right here, it is to the uttermost, it is, it is to the end, it is totally complete. Paul said it is, it is wide, it is deep, it is, it is heavy, it is weighty. And then Jesus says, I'll let you know what my love is all about. I will demonstrate my love for you that while you're still a sinner, Christ says, I will die for you. So if we're going to understand what it means to serve humbly, to be the kind of servant that Jesus is calling his disciples to be. I've got to start by comprehending, understanding completely the depth of the love of Christ for me. Because if I will understand that, that will influence, that will impact how I respond to others. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach them right here. So once he tells them, understand the depth of my love, he gives them this incredible example to follow. So number two, if you're taking notes, follow Christ's example of humble service. If I'm going to be a humble servant, I've got to know his love for me, Comprehend the depth of that love, and I have to make this commitment to follow his example. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. So he got up from supper, laid aside his robe, took a towel, and tied it around him. Next he poured into a basin, water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with the towel around him. That washing of the feet was an activity reserved for slaves. We've talked about that as we looked at the the women anointing Jesus' feet. To to touch a person's feet was really like the lowest thing in in society that could happen. The Romans didn't understand humility. The Greeks, for sure, despised manual labor. And Jesus, in this one act, just does both of those. He humbles himself. He does a a manual task that only the, the lowest slave would do. And he demonstrates total humility, and sacrifice for his disciples. In Philippians chapter 2, that passage that is all about the, the, uh, the humbling of Christ, the Bible says that we're to have this same attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus who humbled himself. Let me just read you a couple of those verses, if I can find it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. In chapter 2 there, when, Jesus, when, when Paul tells the church 
to do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Then he goes on to say, make this attitude of of you that that Christ Jesus had. In verse six, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he was God, but in verse seven, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a slave. And then he goes on to explain that ultimately, the ultimate sacrifice was the giving of his life on the cross. Jesus emptied himself by coming to to mankind, becoming a man and becoming a servant to all. Jesus said, I didn't come to, to, to be served, but to serve. I thought about Jesus' disciples here and how many of them were really worthy of that. We know Judas wasn't. The uh, John, who mentions more about Judas than any other gospel, describes us that Judas is there to betray him. We know that Judas didn't deserve it, but Jesus still willingly gave this example of humility and brokenness. It's interesting. Often those who are unworthy are the ones that God asked us to show this attitude of humility towards. We look at homeless people sometimes and say, well, they're there because they chose that. They chose not to uh, get a job. They chose to do drugs. They chose to do alcohol. And sometimes the Lord just says, okay, they're not worthy, but you still love them. Well, let's break down what this humility, this humble sacrifice that Christ demonstrates. Just break it down. First of all, humility recognizes that no task is beneath us to do for Christ's sake. Humility will recognize that no task is beneath me for Christ's sake. Jesus demonstrated that. He was God in the flesh, and he did a servant's, a menial task of washing the disciples' feet. Leonard Bernstein, the great orchestra conductor, one of the greatest musicians that's that's lived, uh, was asked one time, what's the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? And he said, that's easy. It's second violin or second anything. He said, I can get anybody to play first chair, but it takes takes something for somebody to be willing to play the second chair and play it with the same passion and enthusiasm first chair is. Basically, you want that, and I can remember growing up in band in in, uh, junior high, and I was usually second and third chair, which meant there was a first chair, which meant that guy was better than me. That's what I thought. But really, I came to understand he's just playing the first part. I'm supposed to come along and play the second part or the third part and make the harmony with as much passion so Bernstein said, there's, there's where you need to understand. Everybody needs to be willing to say, no, no task is beneath me. I love the story of Nick Walenda, the high wire walker. That whole family did that in, uh, about in the last decade, I think. He's, he's stretched a high wire across Niagara Falls and walked across that. He stretched across part of the Grand Canyon and walked across that. One of the most daredevils, that, there are some more daredevils out there now, but if you watch the folks climbing, Yosemite and stuff like that, but he's one of those daredevils. It was incredible. All this notoriety. People would come to watch him at those events by the thousands, and they would stay there for, for watching him, you know, gathering around, and then they would leave. And here's what, what Walenda did after the performance. After everybody left, after the media was gone, after the, the visitors were gone, the event was over, he would walk around and pick up trash. And he said, it's amazing how three hours of humbling myself and picking up their trash helped me understand that I can be humble." Because he said he understood that he had this tendency to pride, to, to, toward pride. That's a, that's a great picture of that, right? This person who gathers people to see his great talent, when they're all gone, picks up after them. That's this picture of Jesus right here. 
Nothing is beneath us. Nothing is beneath what we could do because of the sake of Christ. I know sometimes people will be asked to do different tasks through ministry. So, well, that's not my gift. I don't do that. I don't take out the trash. I don't clean bathrooms. I don't whatever. Or our attitude around here is I'm going to be a servant, and if God needs me, I'm going to serve. Secondly, humility requires thinking of others more highly than of myself. Thinking of others more highly than yourself. I'm just fascinated by the fact that if you go back and look at Luke's account here, after the Lord's Supper, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Do you see the picture here? Jesus just gives them this demonstration of even the greatest is willing to to take the most menial task, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're not putting others before themselves. They're putting themselves before others. Jesus told him, whoever's going to be the greatest needs to be a servant of all. Again, in Philippians, when Paul's talking to the church at Philippi, he says, you need to, to do nothing out of rivalry and conceit, but consider others more important than yourselves. In that very church at Philippi, the two ladies were, were arguing with each other, and Paul said, just you two get along. Consider the other person more important than yourself. If you'll move on down in chapter um, 13 there, look at verse 12. I didn't read verse 12, but uh, Jesus, the Bible of John goes on to say that when Jesus had washed their feet, he put on his robe, reclined again, and said to them, do what I have done for you. You call me teacher and Lord, and that is well said. So if I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash the feet one another's feet. So I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done for you. Here's what Jesus was teaching them, not just about the, the need for humility and, and brokenness and servanthood in a minute, the, the need for cleansing, but he's saying you need to go and wash others' feet. Put others more highly than yourself. Third aspect of humility I want to highlight. Humility requires getting your focus off of your rights, off of your needs, and onto the needs of others off of your rights, get your focus off of your rights, your needs. By the way, when you start talking about my rights, my needs, it's all be, it becomes all about you. Whenever there's a debate, whenever there's a, a, a conflict, whenever there's a, um, even within a, a family or within a church where there's disagreement, when you will put the other person's needs above your own, their, their healing takes place. I love what I learned years ago, that, that in any, any situation, I'm to seek to understand, then to be understood. We flip that, don't we? In any argument, in any conflict, in any difficulty, I want you to understand where I'm coming from first, and then I might listen to you. Flip that. Take that energy and say, I want to most understand where you're coming from first, and then I might be able to come to a place of understanding here. Get your focus off of yourself. Matthew tells about the mother of the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and, and asked that, that they could have a place of honor, thinking of, thinking of them only and not others. And then lastly, the fourth thing, humility requires receiving, not just giving. Receiving, not just giving. In verse 8, Peter's response is, you will never wash my feet ever. Can I, can I just kind of paraphrase what Peter's saying? I really don't want to receive what you have for me, Lord, because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Some have said that that's, that's all about Peter's pride. Years ago, and this shows you how many years ago it was, 
my car, my used uh, um, Impala did not have a cassette player in it. And I was admiring my friend's cassette player. And I said, man, you know, I, I sure wish my car had a cassette player. And this is in the days when you could do this. And a week or so later, my friend walks up to me and hands me a cassette player. And I recognized that it was out of his car. He had, when he heard me say that, God prompted him to give me his cassette player. So y'all know what a cassette player is? Everybody? Okay. Tell your, explain to your kids what that is, all right? It's right after eight tracks. But he handed, and I recognized it, and I said, Glenn, I, I can't take that. And I put up a really big resistance to it. And he finally said, Kevin, stop. He said, you are about to rob me of the blessing of giving this to you. Well, that was a lesson I learned. I took it, and I was grateful, and I thank God for that. Sometimes humility means being willing to receive and say, you know what, I, I, I don't deserve this. I wish I hadn't opened my mouth, but God prompted you to do that, so thank you. That's what Peter should have said. Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Jesus told him, you don't get it, you don't understand it, but I'm going to receive it because you're doing this in love to bless me. Boy, there's a whole other sermon here about people not wanting to accept the gospel because they want to have something that they can do themselves. You run across that as you try to share the gospel with someone, you tell them it's, it's by grace, it's free, it's a gift. Well, I can't receive that. I need to do something about it. I need to, I need to work for it. Be willing to receive. It's not just giving. Ah, I need to move on. We need to understand the love of Christ, follow his example, and then this picture, this illustration here of cleansing, we need to depend completely on Christ's cleansing from sin. Depend completely on the cleansing from sin that comes from Jesus Christ. See, the key to this passage is not just servanthood, it's not just humility. I, I think it's verse 10 where Jesus really unpacks the theological truth of what he's illustrating here. He's not just illustrating servanthood. He's also illustrating the need for cleansing. So I've got three things to say about that. First of all, rely on who Jesus is. If I'm going to come to God and receive his cleansing from sin, I need to start with who he is. And verse 1 says right there, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. Here's, here's a, 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 I think in, in a nutshell, what, what John is trying to tell us here is Jesus knew who he was. He was God in the flesh. He had come for the purpose of giving his life. It was about to happen. And once he gave his life, he would then rise again, as we sang about earlier this morning. God had given everything into his hands. Jesus knew that. He's the eternal God. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the one who loves us with an everlasting love, verse 1 there of chapter 13. He's a sovereign God as he understands that his purpose is to come and give his life for us. And he's a suffering servant. All of those things describe who Jesus is. There's a whole lot more about his character. But, but again, in verse 1, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew the hour had come. Jesus was the Passover lamb. The Bible says he is the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. The Passover was a picture of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed during the time of the Exodus in the book of Exodus 
when the children of Israel were escaping the bondage of Egypt. And God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spare every family that, that takes, a pass, takes a lamb, sacrifices that lamb, takes the blood and puts it over the doorpost. Then the destroyer passes over the angel of death. I will pass over your house. And that's the Passover lamb. So every year, the children of Israel at Passover festival would do that to remind themselves of God's grace and God's deliverance. And, and that Passover lamb was a picture of Jesus Christ who would be the ultimate Passover lamb. So this is who he is. Isaiah so clearly said it in Isaiah 53. He was a lamb taken to the slaughter, silent before his accusers. So I need to rely on who Jesus is. If I'm going to understand that my sins can be forgiven, that my sins can be cleansed, I need to understand that Jesus is God. He's sovereign. He gave his life for me according to God's perfect plan, and he is the ultimate sacrifice for my sin. The Passover lamb, with a capital T, the Passover lamb. Because his blood, the writer of Hebrews says, cleanses completely once for all. All the other Passover lambs were a picture. Jesus was the ultimate. So I need to understand, I need to rely on who Jesus is. He is the one who can accomplish it for me, who accomplished it at the cross. Secondly, I need to recognize who we are. We need to recognize who we are. If I'm to be cleansed from my sin, I've got I've to fess up. I'm preparing a, a sermon that, that, uh, that I'm working up for a, a revival meeting that I'm preaching in September at another church. Uh, near Hallettsville, and, and looking at that story of the, the, the woman caught in the act of adultery, and just going back to that truth of how we've been caught in the act, and, and that's us. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah said. We've turned everyone to his own way. All of us. Paul said it in Romans 3 this way, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's a, here's a lesson in Greek, and you didn't ask for it, but here it goes. When the Bible says all have sinned, you know what that word all means? In the original language, all. Like that? Because that's free. Everybody, everybody, except the Lord Jesus himself, has sinned. We need to recognize that's who we are. We need to recognize that we are sinners in need of salvation, in need of this once-for-all cleansing. So I've got to know that Jesus is the one who paid the price for me, Secondly, I've got to recognize that I needed someone to pay the price for me. Thirdly, I've got to understand where I walk. Understand where I walk. Now, this picture, I don't know completely that this is what Jesus was trying to communicate, but it is so clear to me and other Bible scholars as they look at this picture of Jesus washing the disciples' feet that we walk in a messed up, dirty world. And as Jesus is saying, you've got dirty feet from walking on this dirty road. I need to clean your feet. You need cleansing. It's a, it's a reminder of us that, that we walk in a sinful, broken, dirty world. And we need him to wash our feet. Sometimes we get dirty feet because we deliberately step out in the, the muck and mire, right? Sometimes we get dirty feet because we just get astray. In his book, Glorious Mess, I love what Mike Howerton says. He's telling about a childhood experience of playing mud football. Did you ever play mud football? The muddier the field, the more fun. And there was some puddles that had, that had come after a really heavy rain. And so they were not just having a mud football game, but they would slide forever in that water. We're just really having this blast. He says, a kid, they were all excited until one of his buddies stood up after getting tackled, and he, and he noticed something wide across his shoulder. And he went over there and looked at it and looked real close, and it was toilet paper. 
And then he thought, what is this wet toilet paper doing on his shoulder? And then he started sniffing and thought, I thought this water smelled kind of bad. And then they discovered that there had been a, after the storm, during the storm, a, a broken pipe, a sewer pipe had emptied into those puddles. Yeah, I hesitated to tell that story. But, you know, sometimes in life we get to going along and we think we're having a great time playing mud football. And we're just right in the middle of the muck. See, it was worth it, right, to get there. You had to hear the story to get to that truth. But just, just, to, just to wrap up verse 10 there, the one who is bathed, and that is to bathe all over completely, and even in the text of the, the word there, it means once for all. The one who is bathed completely, and that means, I believe, to be cleansed from sin, com- sin completely. Jesus told them, doesn't need to, to wash anything except his feet. Here's what, what most understand Jesus is saying, is I first need to come to Christ in total surrender and brokenness, admit that I'm a sinner, and the blood of Christ cleanses me from all my sin. I am clean. I'm bathed from top to bottom, wholly clean before God. But there will be need on a daily basis for me to have that washing, the washing of the word scripture talks about. Some have said, some have said daily cleansing. Now, I'm completely forgiven, but on a daily basis, I'm gonna need to ask forgiveness for those sins because that restores fellowship that I might, that might be broken with the Father. So Jesus says you need to be bathed. That's that participation that's having a part in me. And then you need to, on an ongoing basis, be confessing your sin. That's that, that's that, that confession that brings the, the communion with Christ. It's, it's pictured in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the priesthood, when he was, when he was consecrated in the priesthood, he would, he would be washed completely from head to toe. One time, that consecrated him to the priesthood. But then outside the tabernacle or the temple, there was the bronze labor, and the, the priest would wash his hands and feet every time before he went in. It's a picture that in, in daily ministry, he's going to get contaminated, and he needs this ceremonial washing of his hands and feet. And I believe that's what Jesus is talking about here. You're going to, even though you know Christ, even though you're forgiven, even though, even though you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb and immersed in Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory, on a daily basis, you need to confess your sin to him. I think about in my marriage. I've said for years, Kelly and I never fight, but we do have intense fellowship, okay? Um, so you, you get it? But sometimes things will get wrong between us, and, and you know it. You walk in the room, and you just know it. I can, I, can, I can get up, and I'll be going through my day, and, I'll, and then Kelly will get up, or maybe I'll come home, and she's in the kitchen, and if something's not right, I know it's not right. So what do I have to do? We're still married. Just pretend like nothing's wrong. I can ask her what's wrong, and she'll obviously say, what, guys? Nothing. A little bit of young couples, that doesn't mean nothing. Okay, guys? <laughs> And I sense something's wrong, and so I work through, and we talk about it, and maybe confession needs to take place to restore that fellowship. Understand where we walk. There's this not only need to understand that we've been forgiven, but on a daily basis, I've got to confess my sin to keep the fellowship restored. I just close with this. In his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Mark Buchanan tells a story about a woman who survived the Rwandan genocide where Half a million to a million people were killed in a short span of time. I think it's 1994. And her son had been killed, and she was bitter, and she was angry. And she began to pray, God, show me who killed my son. 
And implied in that was because I want to get them. I want to make them pay. She prayed that prayer. She had a dream. I don't advocate putting theology into dreams, but sometimes God works that way in people's lives. And, and she had this dream that she was on her way to heaven, but she came to a house. And she had to go through the front door of this house, through some rooms, up some stairs, and out the back door. And she just was puzzled. So she asked God afterwards, God, what is the meaning of that house in the dream? And, and God impressed upon her, that's the house of your son's killer. Before you get to heaven, you're going to have to go through the house of your son's killer. She thought, I wonder what that means. She still prayed, I want to I I find my son's killer because I, I want to do something about it. Not too long after that, she got a knock on the door, and she opens the door, and this man's standing there. And she says, can I help you? She says, yes, I'm the one who killed your son. He said, you can do anything you want to me. I'm already dead. I'm so miserable. You can put me in prison. I'm already in prison. You can torment me. I've already been tormented. You can do anything you want to me because of what I did to your son. And she said, at that moment, God changed her heart. And, and here's what she said to him. She said, what I need to do to you is I need to make you my son. I want you to come into my house. I want you to eat the food that I would have prepared for my son. I want you to wear the clothes that I would have had for my son. And I want to accept you into my home as my son. Man, I thought, there's a picture of humility, of putting someone else's needs before your own, and of servanthood. That's what God calls us to. Let's obey, okay? Pray together.